I think I was quite freaked out when they were babies about the extent to which my freedom and my life was being curtailed, mm-hmm. even though I'd chosen it. And all of a sudden I just burst into tears. Yeah. Because I realised that we'd finally made it. It's such a relief. <laughs> it is. That's exactly, that's the perfect word really, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a relief. Welcome to Mother Other, a podcast exploring the space between motherhood and our desire for personal development and fulfillment. I am your host, Amy Pearson. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello, welcome to another episode of Mother Other. If you're a long-time listener, thank you for your patience. It's clearly been a while since I've released an episode. I actually recorded today's conversation on Mother's Day, so you can see how long it's taken me to get my act together. This is just the reality of motherhood life whilst juggling lots of other things. I am the epitome of this podcast, to be completely honest with you. I really appreciate you all for hanging around because I have a lot of really great guests to share with you in the coming weeks and months, so it's been worth the wait, I promise. Today on the show, we have Sophie Black, a lifelong journalist and writer currently in the role of the head of publishing at the Wheeler Center and mum to two kids named Walter and Maggie. I'm so lucky to have met Soph through a mutual friend when her daughter Maggie and my son Dorian were just a few months old. It's been incredible watching her mother these two kids while simultaneously killing it in her career. When our kids were only tiny, she was already taking to the stage to interview Monica Lewinsky, a task that seems insurmountable to me, but a seemingly normal experience for Soph. Sophie's had a brimming career, including working on the multi-award-winning podcast The Messenger, the ABC Radio National Program Talk Fest, and heading up such titles as The Women's Agenda, Daily Review, I could go on. In today's conversation, Soph talks about how deeply parenthood bleeds into work life, managing to continue her incredibly successful career whilst growing and raising two humans, being cured of her lifelong affliction of FOMO, along with the painfully solitary experience of secondary infertility and the IVF process. This is an episode that may be sensitive to people who are experiencing fertility issues, and Sophie does mention miscarriage. I think the story and experience that Sophie shares is incredibly valuable for those supporting friends and or family through these issues, and perhaps even for some people experiencing similar things to feel validation for their emotions and pain. So it's a worthwhile listen if you're feeling up to it. Sophie's words are incredibly profound, as you would expect from a writer, so much so that the pull quotes for this episode are literally pages long. So pour yourself a cup of something warm, get comfortable, you're in for a real treat with this one. Here it is. I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm loving the ISO lippy. I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's Mother's Day. You've got to dress up. Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, by you the way. too. How's your morning been so far? Quite lovely. Got some brekkie in bed and then we went for a bike ride and Walter only complained a little bit about leaving the house. So <laughs> winning. Does he like staying at home? 
Yeah, at the moment we have to forcibly drag him out of the house. Oh, such a different fresh age. Air. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. He's a bookworm. Yep. And he's a real homebody. But I think it's also just like I'm really sick of my parents and walking around the same route like yeah, I'm over yeah. it. Yeah, understandable. Um, he was saying oh, he was saying today, oh, I just want to play with my friends at recess. I'm like, Yeah, so do we. (laughs) Yeah, totally. How was your morning? Yeah, good. Um, My partner made me a cake and it's like really really good. So that's just like topped off my day. What kind of cake? (laughs) It's an Ottolenghi cake. So it's like got plums and then meringue on top. Oh, my God. I know. He's outdone me. I was like, oh, great. Now I'm not as good a baker as you. I've lost my, like, domestic role in the house. You'll always have bread. Your bread looks amazing. Oh, thank you. Your bread looks amazing. (laughs) I do enjoy making bread. So today's guest is Sophie Black, mum of two and head of publishing at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. I am so lucky to have met you randomly through a mutual friend at a mums and bubs movie session when our babies were just like tiny slugs um (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time out to chat especially on mother's day it's such a big day so i'm pretty lucky to be able to be spending the day talking with you thank you for having me amy it's a treat i reckon it's a real treat to do this on mother's day actually i do too i do too so i'm really glad that we could there's no real pressure to be like doing anything specific especially in isolation totally (laughs) and you just you very rarely reflect on this kind of stuff or I don't I don't give myself the time to do it so it's a lovely Mm. treat Mm, that's interesting um would you like to start by telling us who you're a mum to sure I'm a mum to seven-year-old Walter and Maggie who is almost one Mm. I've met Maggie, but I haven't met Walter yet. I'm sure I will sometime. Um, She's very cute. I love all of your (laughs) posts on Instagram. She's hilarious. Well, the day, yeah, the day that we met at movie day, that was pretty chaotic from from what I remember. It was a very cold day and it was full. The theatre was absolutely packed full of Mm. slightly stressed mothers. And had you been before? Because I hadn't been. That was my first Mm. experience. Yeah. I have never done it before. And for some reason we were watching The Lion King and I remember thinking, why are we watching The Lion King when we could watch some sort of adult (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Our basic, like we basically, um, chatted the whole way through anyway, most, most of us, I think. Yeah, totally. As did our babies. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So you have done some pretty incredible things in your career. I've been researching you a little bit. I know that sounds kind of like stalkerish, but <laughs> I, I need to do these things, um, including do. including working on a multi-award winning podcast, um, an ABC Radio National program, and heading up titles like Women's Agenda, Daily Review, and of course, the role you're in now. Um, can you talk to me about your life and who you were as a working woman before you became a mum? Sure. Uh, It's still very, very vivid to me, even though I can't believe it's almost eight years ago now. Uh, But at the time I became pregnant with Walter, I was the editor of a publication called Crikey, Mm -hmm. which is a national online news publication with a daily deadline. Uh, And it 
Uh, it's sort of read uh, a lot by uh, media and politics and business insiders. It had a, a deadline of, a notional deadline of 12.30 every day. And Oof. I headed up a team of about 10 people sitting around a desk. So it was pretty stripped back in terms of media outlets, as a lot of online publications are. But um, the great joy of Crikey is that it's sort of at, it feels like it's at the epicentre of everything that's going on in terms of a national conversation around politics. Mm. Uh, and I loved it. I was completely addicted to the adrenaline of it. Mm. Uh, I loved heading up a team. Uh, I had worked at Crikey for many years before then, uh, first as a journalist, then as a deputy editor, and then finally was promoted to editor, uh, which they hadn't had a female editor before. It was pretty unusual. Crikey is a pretty, still to this day, can be quite blokey and have a predominantly male readership, despite the fact that half the staff have been made up of women for a very long time now. Um, but I just absolutely thrived on it. I love, I'm obsessed with politics. Um, I'm obsessed with connecting the dots around the way, the way power works across society. And mm. I just thrived on it. And then, so, um, I had sort of thought about having kids, you know, once I ticked past 30, it was in the back of my mind, but I, I really vividly remember thinking, no, I'm, I'm not ready for it not to be all about me yet. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and then I scored the promotion um, uh, to, to editor. Uh, and so I thought, no, I've really got to give this a good shake for at least a couple of years. Uh, so I was one of those classic women that were kind of, you know, if, if it can be defined like this, but really at the peak of their career, like really thriving. I was doing TV on the side. I was doing the project yeah. on the side and I was doing Sunrise and all these other shows at the same time while I was running this publication. So it was a frantic kind of existence to be pregnant um, in, but I loved it. And I distinctly remember feeling Walter kick against the desk come deadline every day. As oh, he- wow. As I was getting more and more pregnant, no doubt completely high on the adrenaline of me doing what I was doing yeah. on deadline every day. How interesting. And so that maternal desire only sort of came through for you once you hit 30, do you think? Or had you always um, kind of thought about it? I'd always thought about it. I'd always um, really looked forward to it, but mm. only as something that was kind of far into my future as a as a sort of I grew up with mum's stories of motherhood and mum absolutely adored looking after us as babies and she was the kind of that kind of archetypal image of a mum that uh looked after us thrived doing it um was very resilient because she was living um living at first in the dandenongs um kind of not near anyone at all while dad worked uh and then we moved into state and she had a my little sister um and didn't know a soul and was very isolated we had paddocks all around us so Mm. she despite all that thrived on it and she sewed quilts on the side and had a market store where she sold her quilts and was a great cook and so she was just 
I grew up with those stories. And so in my mind, I was like, I'm going to go really hard now with my career because I'm absolutely loving it. And then once I have a baby, I imagine my life will be a lot like mum. I'll like suddenly know how to quilt and like <laughs> make jam and become an amazing <laughs> chef. And that will be my treat to myself and my kind of my like my the next gear that I shift into after I've gone really hard with this career stuff. That's mm. that's really how I kind of I had sort of I'd marked it in my mind or compartmentalized it in my mind as that that's how it was going to work. It's interesting how you have such strong sort of imaginings of what your life is going to look like along the way because so many people don't yes. do that. But has it turned out for you like that as a mother? Of course it's not that neat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course it's not that neat. And so uh, even as I was pregnant with Walter and I was just like a hamster on a wheel, saying yes to everything, doing everything, I think I remember being very heavily pregnant and interviewing uh, the then Environment Minister, Greg Hunt, on mm. Meet the Press. And I remember waddling into the green room and his eyes kind of flicking down to look at me <laughs> as if to say, uh, there's a baby that's about to fall out of you. And I just I said yes to everything with this idea in my head that as soon as I had this baby, that would all finish for a while, for mm. a very neat year at least. I had that that idea of going on maternity leave for a year, um, I would just drop out of the world for a year and I would just be a mum and that would be my amazing reward for working this hard. Mm. Um, but I didn't expect to feel as torn as I did yeah. uh, after I had the baby. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that because I'm really interested in talking to you about that. But I'd like to know mm. a bit about your journey towards actually starting your family and getting pregnant with each of your babies. Okay. Um, so with Walter, it was, you know, a pretty straightforward story. It still took about a year to conceive him. But to be honest, with every month that passed that we didn't conceive, I kind of felt like it was a bit of a leave past because I get I got mm. to continue doing what I loved doing. Mm. Um, and by then I was probably, one more, I was like 33, 34, um, and I was having acu acupuncture and doctors started to say it's taking, you know, a little bit longer than you'd want it to. But so I got some tests and we got the all clear. So we, we felt pretty confident and then eventually... I fell pregnant with Walt and that was all very straightforward. Um, had a, an amazing experience um, in terms of the birth and came out of it feeling like an absolute superhero. Like mm. I just was high on life, high oh, on I love that. oxytocin, high on everything and just mm. felt like a complete superwoman. Like mm -hmm. this is incredible. So that was a really, really wonderful experience. But with Maggie, Maggie uh, took her sweet time uh, and that was something completely unexpected for me. So we started trying with Maggie probably when Walty was about two and a half um, and thought, oh, we're not quite ready for someone else to come along yet, but we better get onto it because by then I was nearly 35 when I had Walt. So I was very mindful of... Um, the clock ticking, although because I'd had a baby, I wasn't really worried. I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. Is, I know how this works. I've been here before. Uh, and then, of course, it didn't, it didn't work out that way. Uh, so 
I think we tried for a couple of years before we started consulting fertility experts um, and nobody, as is often the way with these things, nobody had any definitive answers for us. Mm. Uh, but they started bandying the term around secondary infertility um, and to hear that I word, the, the infertility word, was mm. incredibly shocking and something that we just were not prepared for. I think when Walter took a little while, we started worrying um, and, and realised we couldn't um, take having a baby for granted. But once we'd had Walt, I absolutely took it for granted that it would just yeah. happen again. So eventually that kicked off IVF um, and we did on, IVF on and off for around four years. Now, we weren't doing IVF that entire time. We took breaks because it is very, very taxing, mm. um, as anyone who's done it will tell you. Everybody responds in a very unique way. Mm. So I'll preface anything I say by saying it's completely different for each person. Yeah. Um, and for me, I felt very, very angry, which meant really now that I've looked back on it, I was I think I was pretty entitled mm. <laughs> because I I literally just took it for granted that I could have another kid and I was furious that it wasn't happening. Mm. Um, even though, you know, I would tell myself, you are so lucky you already have a kid. Um, this would be even harder if you were going through this experiencing, not knowing if you could have children at all. Um, I would tell myself that, but still internally, I, I think there was a lot of anger there and a lot of denial for a while. And that came out as anxiety. I didn't want to make, have to make room in my life for IVF. It's, it's a very, um, it's very invasive and it's very, medicalized which sounds mm. like a strange thing to say but of course it is mm. um but instead of appreciating the amazing science of it and appreciating how really privileged I was to be able to try IVF to have the money and the means to do it um I'd had such a wonderful experience with my pregnancy with Walter and the birth that I was so ready to just go off the grid with my next baby I just just felt so confident in my body and so wonderful and empowered that when it was failing me I just felt anger and I felt very 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 resentful that I was sitting in that waiting room mm. um in that IVF waiting room so when you were working through this period how was that for you because that would have put a lot of stress on your career and your working life right I, I imagine you probably didn't show a lot of that because you're such a powerful like amazing worker I can't imagine that coming through for other people but for yourself that would have been quite a struggle it was really interesting because um I'd been prepared to reshape my working life around a baby and I had already done that with Walter so I'd um gone on maternity leave for a year with Crikey I'd already told them I didn't want to come back as editor um because I knew that would be a really hard thing to balance and I, I, it's, it's an all-consuming job and I didn't want to give all of myself to that job anymore. I wanted that time with my baby. I was pretty adamant about that. Um, so I took a year off and I'm saying that in air quotes because on the side I did some journalism teaching at the University of Melbourne uh, when he was six weeks old. <laughs> So this is what I mean by feeling torn. <laughs> yeah. It was just a hot, 
mess. I was a hot mess of contradictions. Like I suffer terribly from FOMO and I honestly thought I'll just do a little bit of teaching on the side to keep my brain busy um, while I, you know, have a baby and quilt (laughs) and make jam. Uh, And so that was in turn very rewarding and very stressful. Mm. Like, um, and it meant, I, I still remember the feeling of getting on the tram, going into the university and feeling, again, superhuman, feeling amazing about myself that I was doing it. Mm. Um, But also it was very stressful just trying to make the time to do it. So, you know, as I'm sure you've learned from chatting to mums and and in your own experience of motherhood, everything is a contradiction Mm -hmm. Um, and and feeling torn is the best way I can describe Mm. it, I guess. So I, but I, I took all these opportunities thinking, isn't it wonderful that this next phase of life, not only are you learning to mother and you get the privilege of that, you're also, there are also opportunities that arise that you never would have imagined. So from that, I then um, took the opportunity to direct a festival, the, Fe- the Adelaide Festival of Ideas, which I was approached to do that at, on a part-time basis and everything needed to be on my terms in terms of balancing home and work so part-time was the key for me but I didn't want to um, diminish my opportunities either I wanted I still wanted to be ambitious even if it meant um, but it had to be done on sort of my terms so that that kind of thing ticked all the boxes for me again in so many ways was incredibly rewarding but again was incredibly stressful Uh, so I finally returned to Crikey as editor-in-chief, um, 18 months later. Uh, and that was incredible because the company Private Media was then headed up by a woman named Marina Go. Now there are, uh, women of a certain age and you're not it, Amy, (laughs) but (laughs) women of a certain age who remember Marina Go as the editor of Dolly Magazine. Mm, I remember Dolly Magazine, Um, of course. Yes. Well, so they... Marina Go, that name just makes some women lose their minds with excitement. And she she was incredible in that she was the real deal in terms of getting women back to work but getting them back to work on their terms. So she said to me, name your days, name when you want to come back. I understand how hard it is to get childcare. I understand you don't want to diminish your ambition. I'm not going to put you in a corner filing away things. I want to give you a promotion. But if it needs to be part-time, it needs to be part-time. So she, she was wow. incredible. So I returned I returned as editor-in-chief um, across a number of titles, as you mentioned earlier, so titles like Crikey and Women's Agenda and a whole stable of titles. Um, so I was feeling pretty great about the way I had, you know, balanced these, balance is such a false word, but let's use it, balanced these two things. I was still getting that valuable time with Walty and feeling like I wasn't missing out, but I was still using my brain and I really felt like I'd nailed it. Uh, and then the IVF thing came along. And yeah, so I right. was prepared to say no to things and prepared to recalibrate my career around a baby. I wasn't prepared to recalibrate and say no for the idea of another yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> On, for the gamble of another yeah, baby. Which makes uh, it so and, right? Yeah. And that was really, really hard. Um, but in the end, I did end up saying no to quite a lot of opportunities because you do need to be kind to yourself with IVF to give it the best possible shot. And some of this stuff required interstate travel, it required 
there was TV that required getting up really early in the morning. There was all this stuff. And in the end, I just had to make peace with this idea of saying no, just to be able to tell myself that even if a baby didn't come out of this, I could reassure myself with um, by knowing that I'd done everything and tried everything. Yeah. So then what happened? Because you did end up pregnant eventually and I'd love to know how that all worked yes. out. <laughs> we had a, a really wonderful doctor. We went through a couple of doctors um, and we went through some really hard, very disappointing times. Um, the, the thing about IVF is that you need to jump several hurd- hurdles within the course of one treatment and I'm, I won't go into all the details but you're holding your breath at many different moments um, during what they call one round of IVF. And I think in the end we had around seven to eight rounds across four years. Um, and it can be, you know, it, it can be very impersonal and you really do at times need nerves of steel because there are times when you are waking up from anaesthetic and, and they literally write the number on your hand of how many eggs they've retrieved, I think they call it. Um, and so you look down at your hand to see how you've gone, how, how you've scored, because, of course, the more eggs you have, the better chance you have. It's really a numbers game. And even game. just coming out of anaesthetic alone is such a weird experience. Yes. God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so then there's the the phone call from the nurse too at, at the end of that month that, and they will tell you whether or not you're pregnant or not. And so it's instead of that private moment that you normally have where you pee on a stick and you have the either the joy or the disappointment by yourself, um, you are experiencing that with another person on the end of the phone and you are with a trembling voice, you need to tell them your name, your address, your phone number, just to confirm your ID before they tell you the news. So you know, and you're doing this in the background of, of work. Um, normally, you're at, you're in an office, or you've got your younger child in the background, and so it, it can be quite taxing. Um, and in the middle of it all, we took a break for a while, and we got pregnant naturally, which was an absolute joy. Um, and our first thought was, "Oh my gosh, amazing!" And excuse my language, but fuck IVF. Yeah. <laughs> that was our. That was our first reaction, like, oh, my God, incredible. Um, But I ended up miscarrying. So that was in some ways really difficult, but in other ways it made us hopeful that Mm. it could happen naturally. Now it didn't. So we we returned to IVF reluctantly but with a new doctor and she was incredible and she was amazing. And I think the thing that IVF taught me really was that it's – possible to experience both grief and joy at the same time it's possible to have two gears at all times and with IVF you're constantly balancing hope and grief Um, you're grieving what might not happen you're hopeful that it will happen which is why you're there in the first place or you couldn't keep going but you're constantly telling yourself we will be okay if this doesn't happen despite everything we will be okay and for a long long time we didn't really believe that. But by the end, um, the last sort of implantation, I remember Ben, my partner, and I going out, leaving the surgery, and we said to each other, we're not, we're not doing this again. This is, this is it. We're not doing it again. 
And it felt kind of freeing because we really honestly finally did believe we will be okay. We will just reimagine life a different way and it, it's going to be okay. And then, of course, I got the news that I was pregnant, which oh was gosh. amazing. And now look at her. <laughs> She's just perfection, you know. You must just get so much joy when you look at her every day. We really do. It hasn't worn off yet. Every single day we look at her and can't quite believe mm. she's here and we're surrounded by people who feel the same way because we have, you know, a circle of friends and family that went through that experience with us, whether it was talking about it, which we initially talked a lot about it and then didn't talk yeah. about it. We just stopped, stopped talking about it. We were boring ourselves. I was boring myself. Yeah. Um, I didn't talk with anyone about it at work anymore. I just thought I'm going to make that a background thing, even in my own mind, and I'm going to enjoy my life and I don't want it to be all about this. I don't want it to be all consuming. So it's almost like every time you're sharing that with someone, it's like you're grieving a second time or a third time mm. or a fourth time. And then I can imagine what you're saying it becomes a bore to yourself. Like I don't want to have to go through all of this again. It's really sort of um, grueling, you know. I, I was thinking as well about friendship and wondering throughout that experience, did you have any difficult friendships? Did you find there were people that sort of didn't understand, obviously no one understands that's not been through it themselves, but to an extent that was painful for you and that you had to let go or anything along those lines? I think I was very lucky in that uh, I had friends and family who knew exactly how painful it was um, and it was partly because everybody already had kids and they were having their second and third children while we were going through this. So if anything, they were acutely aware of how painful it was because very often they were holding their own new baby um, and they all, I, I sort of still remember the apology in their eyes yeah <laughs> the kind of and I really appreciated it and hated it at the same time yeah. uh and there's nothing they could have done about it and they were wonderful because they extended their friendship and my family constantly offered their support but they knew when to just stop talking about it they knew when we, we just wanted to close in on ourselves and, and not talk about it. And it was especially hard because uh, my sister and I are incredibly close. I have one younger sister and she got pregnant just before I did with the pregnancy that I then miscarried. So we had one joyful day of going, oh, my God, we're pregnant together and this has finally happened and this is amazing. And then suddenly I had a miscarriage and poor M was still pregnant with Ted, my beautiful niece. So Em had to work really hard and, and she, you know, I never asked it of her, but I know that she didn't share things with me about that pregnancy and, and when, when Ted, Theodora, Ted, uh, came along, that was really hard mm. for everybody in different ways mm. because I know Em was trying to kind of... Um, yeah, protect me however she could mm. even though she was going through this joyous experience um and to me you know some some people who go through this find comfort in babies and want to be around babies and others don't and for me babies were like kryptonite for a while mm, <laughs> they just yeah. 
And I remember it says in the IVF pamphlet, maybe be kind to yourself and don't hang around babies while you're going through this. But when you already have a kid of your own and you, you're in a world where everybody's having their second and third baby, it's almost impossible to do that. So there were quite a few friends having babies at the same time along with my sister mm. and I, they were amazingly understanding and, and I knew just I, de- I knew they just desperately wanted to change things and couldn't yeah. and I knew I had their love and support no matter what. Yeah. Hello there. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm interrupting you to bring you our first ever ad. Do you need a new website? Nikki from Seedling Digital builds beautiful brands with meaning, custom WordPress websites and strategic marketing plans for small and medium-sized businesses who are ready to make big growth. She describes her work as a minimalist blend of creative and professional and has a passion for working with women-led businesses. I recently hired Nikki to build a custom WordPress website for Mother Other. With a background in design myself, I had high expectation and a pretty particular vision in mind. Nikki made the process really easy for me and saved me so much time, including building in review software for the podcast and thinking through ways to build income through the website. She enabled me through education and training at Handover and was open to changes to nail my vision. I am so impressed with the overall design. For all of your custom branding and website building needs, get in touch with Nikki at seedlingdigital.com.au. Now, back to the podcast. And then when you finally did have Maggie, did that sort of motherhood dream that you had become fulfilled? Because I know that it sort of did in some element the first time around, but then you obviously wanted mm. another kid which would have paused that dream for a little while there. So did the second baby sort of, yeah, did it give you any sense of fulfilment? I don't know whether it would have happened anyway because uh, second babies, from what I hear, you do have much more perspective. You have a much better sense of time and how fleeting it is and that nothing is permanent in a way that you just can't possibly have when you have a first baby. Um, With a first baby, you think you're stuck in that particular period for the rest of your life. Oh, my life. God, yes, you do. <laughs> uh, you, you do, don't you? You can't see your way out of it. You know on paper that it's fleeting but it doesn't feel fleeting. Mm. Your your whole identity is turned upside down. Mm. With a second baby, that is much less the case and uh, even in normal circumstances. With Maggie, because she was so longed for for so long, I... Uh, I am finally cured of my lifelong affliction of FOMO. I <laughs> I know how fast it goes. I mean, she's about to turn one and I can't believe it. And so I am finally very, very okay with saying no. Uh, I know that the world will keep ticking over. Uh, I know that I will find my place in it again with my work. Um, I am just loving hanging out with this baby what an incredible place to be like (laughs) I look forward to feeling that one day I'm still the FOMO queen I know that feeling so well and I spent my entire time with Walter like it and I think it doesn't matter how much people tell you to cure yourself of it you can't be told and I really think it's a big whack of that is a first baby thing because it's just it's such a, it's like giving birth through your head as well. As, yeah, oh my gosh, it is. As well as, 
and I think it's also because we talk so much about having a baby. You're having a baby. I've had a baby. Instead of saying you're having a person. Yeah. Um, and I think I've come to realize as well that this is, it's a, of course, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I've watched women give up work and go through harder things with their kids as teenagers than they ever were as babies. I've realized that this is for life. As obvious as that sounds, mm. you do not feel like that way, that way when you have that first baby. They are a, very much a baby and will always remain a baby mm. in your mind yeah. for a very long time. So yeah, it's it is it is a lovely, wonderful feeling to feel like this at the moment. I'm sure it's fleeting. Mm-hmm. It will pass. <laughs> it will pass. But for now, um, for now I'm really Soak it up. It. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So going back a little bit in time to shortly after Maggie was born, you took on a massive role interviewing Monica Lewinsky for Broadside. Um <laughs> I remember it really clearly because at the time I was also well, I, you obviously weren't a new mum, but I was a new mum and I wasn't sleeping much and I was going through all of those sort of heavy demands of having a baby and I just couldn't wrap my head around how you were managing to do this thing, this massive thing of getting on stage and interviewing this, you know, worldwide known persona or person, I should say. Um, so you'd obviously done a lot of things like this in the past, especially because your career is so flourishing, but what was the experience like for you? Did did you sort of struggle through that? Was that feel did that feel like a regular thing for you to be doing because of who you are as a person? Um, that's a really good question. I I had a lot of time to think about it. I knew that I was that they they sounded me out even before Maggie was born. So I said yes, but with a little bit of nervousness knowing that I didn't know what kind of baby this was going to be. So, uh, but again, I'm very bad at saying no, despite despite what I've just told you. <laughs> I'm still not great at saying, so you just can't say no to Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, so I just figured, all right, she'll be six months old by then. Um, you know, you can do this. You've got six months to think about it in your head, even if it's, thinking about it in snatches while you're feeding Maggie or watching old interview clips of Monica, you know, on YouTube while you're feeding Maggie. Like if this is all you do for six months, just kind of soak in everything about Monica Lewinsky, then you're going to be okay. And there was a thing about, there's a thing about my brain where I like, I feel like I need to have something on the go. Um, Mm. But also I understand, like I had a lot of people saying, how the hell are you going to do that? But I think that I think the same of that in terms of women who, I don't know, go off and work in the hospital system or yeah. women who manage to write a novel while they've got a baby. I just, I just, I cannot wrap my mind around that. So for me, maybe it is my comfort zone doing that kind of thing and I do love it and thrive on it. And it turns out Monica was an incredibly warm person who, um, set me at ease and 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 so I knew it was going to be okay I was breastfeeding Maggie before I went on stage and after I went on stage (laughs) but it felt like a safe environment because it 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 was with the Wheeler Centre so it's with my colleagues um and they were there to support me and cheer me on and 
I don't know, once I got on stage, I don't know, it's a bit of an out-of-body experience. I couldn't couldn't tell you what we talked about, um, <laughs> but I do remember really genuinely enjoying it. And Maggie was up the back in the in the audience squawking away, but I, I didn't I didn't hear her at all. I wonder what she was um, thinking. <laughs> I wonder what she was thinking. Um, but, you know, I felt this kind of wonderful sense of achievement at the end of it and it was a great conversation and I just. That's amazing. I love hearing yeah. about women doing these types of things, especially <laughs> like, you know, I just, it's an incredible achievement, you know, to do that. So shortly thank, after thank you, you had a baby, I really, I know that, that it's your comfort zone, but it's still pretty phenomenal to someone like me who can't even imagine being in that situation anyway, you know. Um, That's lovely of you to say, but I've seen the loaves of bread that you've been uh, making and <laughs> equally I can't imagine being able to do that. Oh, it's not as hard as it looks. Or pull together a podcast series <laughs> or, you know. Yeah, thank you. Just keep a human alive, really. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That is quite a hard task. Um, so circling way back, I'd like to talk to you about how much motherhood has impacted your identity. I know you've touched on it quite a lot, but if you actually think about that question on its own, what does it bring up for you? Um, it's such, mm, I guess I, I go back to remembering how I thought about things before I was a mother and, and really acutely remembering that I didn't want it to not be all about me <laughs> for a long time. And now I, now I think about how much motherhood just informs everything I do. Um, it doesn't, I know we resist this idea of motherhood, motherhood defining us. Um, and I know it, it, there is more to me than motherhood, but it does imbue everything I do now in a way that I probably couldn't have predicted. And in a wonderful way, I don't think it has diminished me in any way. That's not to say I don't get exhausted and I don't uh, put myself first enough. I, I don't. I, I forgo the exercise I should be doing. I, um, I can feel myself, um, you know, slipping every now and then and, and um not locking the door and reading a book for even for five minutes to keep the brain ticking over. And when I finally do do that, I feel so much better mm. for it. But uh, as a whole, I just feel that it has, um, it has made me rethink the structures around work and society more and in a, in a way that, I think it, it has informed my feminism much, much more than before I became a parent. Um, I think I didn't think deeply enough about these things until suddenly I was um, facing barriers that I never would have imagined before I had kids. So that's not to say I haven't had some extraordinary privileges, but I, I am more acutely aware of how much harder things become and how much you can't can't take anything for granted um, in terms of work uh, and in terms of your relationship with your partner, everything um, after you have kids. Um, 
So it has made me work harder at everything mm. and and think deeper about everything. And I think, you know, there are things that I've, issues I've worked on my whole life as a journalist, like climate change and um, inequality and um, senses, things that, you know, a sense of injustice around, say, um, refugees and all these things, but I I never want to use the word as a mother because I think it's a total cliche mm. and it's, it, it completely um, induces eye rolls, but issues like climate change I feel more acutely now um, because I have a bigger sense of a future beyond my own lifetime and I can see my kids in that future. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it kind of, in some ways, again, it's a hot mess of contradictions. In some ways, it makes me want to work harder in harder on those things in terms of my career. And in other ways, you want to run away from it because it's, yeah. it's more painful to consider and it's more personal. Yeah, absolutely. I am sort of forever interested in this existential dilemma of dividing our time between our children and our vocations or our careers or whatever it is that we call it individually. How at the moment, especially during the current situation of COVID, how do you prioritise between the two, especially with uh, Walter at home doing homeschooling and mm. you have a baby, well, uh, almost one-year-old, um, and are you still working at the moment? I'm doing a little bit of work for the Wheeler Centre, uh, sort of one day a week, uh, um, working on a, an amazing writing scheme, writer's scheme that we launched called The Next Chapter. So I'm doing a little bit of that work. I'm doing a little bit of interview work here and there, um, but predominantly my time is absolutely, as you say, being taken up with homeschooling and, and Maggie. And... I guess I'm I'm better even without a global pandemic and the very, very unique situation of schooling my seven-year-old. I am getting better at knowing this too shall pass and this is where I'm needed most right now and I will shift gears again at some point in my kids' lives and then I may shift gears again. I've seen I've seen a lot of women shift gears once their kids become teenagers and sort of express surprise at the fact that they actually feel more needed and more necessary with their kids as teenagers. So I'm I'm sort of trying to prepare for that in my mind as best as you possibly can. But I I guess I I'm much better at knowing that things will change and change and change again. And the nature of working in the media is that it is absolutely all encompassing. And that is one of the things that I, I love about it. Um, but if I don't have all of that to give right now, that's okay and I will go back to it. Um, so it's just a matter of, of shifting gears and knowing that nothing is permanent. Um, and, it, and sometimes it's hard to tell yourself that. Like you don't often, that you don't always internalise that. And that's not to say that I don't have moments of feeling unsure or questioning decisions. I think everybody does, but for the most part, especially now, I think during this <laughs> very unique situation, 
it is much easier to tell yourself, all right, my main role here right now is to keep my family safe and happy yeah. uh, and to keep money coming in mm. uh, and, you know, let's reassess when we see how things shake out. Yeah. Really. What about physical space? Do you have physical space for yourself to work at home or is this something you just sort of do on the fly wherever you can? I do it on the fly. Yeah. I have a laptop. Yeah. Uh, I have a laptop and normally, you know, Maggie is a great sleeper. So normally lucky I had you. a chunk of time. I know, right? <laughs> and I know how lucky I am because it was a much bigger battle with Walt. So don't think I don't know how lucky oh, no, I'm I am. Sure. I don't I'm sure like do. to say it out loud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much jealousy every uh, time I hear it. It's hard to to dumb it down. I'm like, oh, they sleep well. Oh, that's great. Oh. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> uh, no, I totally get it. And don't worry, um, the universe is now balancing out because I don't get a spare second because I have a seven-year-old to school yeah. while Maggie's asleep. I don't even because- understand. I have any comprehension of <laughs> what it would either. be like to be taking on that. Oh, my gosh. I don't either. Luckily, Maggie is a late bloomer so she's only just started crawling but it does mean if she's awake while we're trying to uh get some schooling done she will just be crawling around trying to eat everything (laughs) so it's pretty much impossible I remember that so clearly so yeah yeah so look the schooling thing is fraught you know we have good moments and bad moments and you know ISO is a little bit like parenting really that you can experience 20 different states of being across the course of a day Mm, so definitely we're just learning to appreciate the good moments of the day there are no good days or bad days there are moments so many small moments to appreciate or not appreciate um (laughs) do you think this inner battle between devoting our time to raising our children or our own careers or our own self-expansion or whatever you want to call it Mm. is unique to the birthing mother is this something that extends to all parents or is it something that because it seems to come back to mothers all the time and I'm interested to know what your perspective is on that I this period of isolation has been really fascinating because my partner Ben has been working from home and so for him it has been an absolute gift because he has spent more time with Maggie than he ever ever would have um prior to this and and way more time than he ever spent with Walter I I think back to us with Walter we just he was um he was a breakfaster on triple r at the time when Walter was born he was doing morning radio um and also working at an ad agency so he would get up at 5 30 and go into radio and then go off to work and I remember in our minds it was like well we're sleep deprived anyway so you know it's perfect (laughs) it's absolutely perfect we were insane um so he has this new appreciation of what he missed with Walter in many ways um all those little moments and so I don't think there's enough of a conversation around what men miss out on when they return to work uh, and it is not questioned by their employees. It isn't really questioned by them them because I think they're taught that they're not allowed to question it Mm. um, and that it's a privilege that they just get to continue on with their careers without even a blip. Um, And I saw male editors do that, you know, have three kids and, you know, and and their, their career just, 
progressed without even yeah. a, a pause. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's enough of a conversation around what they've missed out on by that happening mm. because it's it's characterised as a woman's choice. It's very binary. It's very black and white. It's very either or. When really we should be talking about how family bleeds into our lives in so many ways, including our work, and that includes men. And what are men missing out on by not pausing for a second, by not having a break in their CV, by carrying on that career and having children at the same time as if they do have it all and they don't have it all? There's a compromise in going back to work. There is, there is a very fleeting period of time that they miss out on and it's a magical, magical time and that's everyone's choice it should be a woman's choice as well but I think we're kidding ourselves if we're if we think there is no compromise on either side that it is absolutely impossible to do both of those things at the same time without missing out on something that you can't unless you bend space and time it is impossible so my hope and I think one of the lovely things about this experience of um, isolation, one of the silver linings, it's, I know it's incredibly difficult, um, especially for certain members of society, it's, it's incredibly difficult. But I, I hope that we have a different conversation about work and family. And I, we've seen people let their guard down. We've seen people have meetings from home and having children run around in the background yeah. and people at their messiest and people at their most vulnerable and I hope we can retain some of that because I don't think we talk about that enough at mm. all. We have this professional veneer, men and women, uh, when really life bleeds into work and vice versa mm. and it's, it's, not, it's not an either or um, but we have to get much better at acknowledging how we do that in a kinder way. Yeah. Um, Annabelle Crabb wrote that really interesting essay in um, quarterly essay. And what was it called again? I can't remember now. Um, I can't remember. I mean, I, I remember I'll put reading it... The Wife Drought. Yeah, but The Wife then, Drought was yes, great she did have. But then, yeah. yeah, the quarterly essay came out last year, I think. I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who's listening mm-hmm. because it kind of goes, delves into that, what men miss out on and how men are sort of jibbed because they don't get these um things that we get like maternity leave and things like that to actually be around for their for their kids so yeah there's a whole I just I think it it makes it harder um for any partnership I don't know about you but one of the big things for Ben and I with our first baby was just renegotiating how work and home worked for both of us and and that trade-off and it really took a while for us to find our equilibrium and I think you know, there's all this stuff and Annabelle Crabbe's written beautifully about this in, in the wife drought around assumptions that women make um, and, and the fact that women kind of um, by default uh, start issuing instructions to their partners and start telling them the right way to do things and then that creates resentment and when really it's just because they're the primary caregivers in most cases and so they've learnt the hard way what the best way is to do things. But if men had the chance to do that and have that time at home mm. and have days and days where they're the primary caregiver going out of their mind, yeah. <laughs> of mundanity, yeah. then it would be much easier to sort of um, have a more kind of 
uh, understanding relationship from the get-go with all of those tiny little things that you need to negotiate and learn mm. to renegotiate. Mm. It's, it's really hard and, and often it's, it's, it's not their fault. Like they, they just haven't been down in the trenches for hours and hours and hours on end and that's the only way you learn. And it's so hard not to have resentment as a first-time mother in, yes. in some moments for your partner because you totally. just think you don't understand. But, yeah, we don't really give them And they chance. don't. They yeah. literally don't. Yeah. yeah. So why is it do you think that us mothers are run off our feet trying to prove to the world um, that we're more than just mothers, that we're capable of being successful, accomplished, multifaceted, artists, writers, whatever it is that we're trying to do instead of just reveling in motherhood? I know not everybody is not, the same, but, but you know. Yeah, I think we're taught um, there's a bit of a snideness around being a mum still to this mm. day. Um, I remember people making jokes when I left Crikey about me, coming, me be, becoming a mummy blogger and we all laughed about it and rolled our eyes. And I understand what they were saying, but um, I don't think there's enough recognition around how hard still to this day how difficult the role of parenting is and how messy it is and how there's no again there's no clean delineation between work and parenting it all mushes in together it's all consuming Uh, it's all consuming and it's 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 never ending I mean that that's it's not it doesn't end neatly once the one year of maternity leave is up, you know, and there are, there are books like, you know, I think Lean In, Sandra, um, now I've forgotten her name, Cheryl Sandberg, there we go, we got there in the end, and Lean In. Um, there's all these corporate ideas of motherhood and, and this idea that um, you can do both and, you know, you just need to become more aggressive in the workforce and, and this sort of thing. Um, and you, as you say, there's, we, we give people points for mothering and doing this extra thing um, when really I, I, I think any, even this idea of the stay at home, the term stay at home mum, I don't think there's anyone in the world that just thinks, all right, I'm now a stay-at-home mum and this is me and this is my identity. There's always, there was always the you before you became a mum. So I guess there needs to be just more recognition around the fact that it does all bleed in together and that just keeping a human alive is an incredible achievement and an incredible workload. Um, And that life from here on in is just about building building upon that and and yes you retain parts of yourself yourself but then there are parts of yourself you discover that you never even knew were there um, as a result of becoming a parent and and it's okay for life to change as well I, I think um I think you know my work was so all-consuming before I became a parent and I loved it for that. I absolutely loved it. Um, but I don't necessarily want that right now. That's not what I want. I, I think once I became a parent, and this is the thing I finally realised, I was forever going to be torn between those two things. Um, there would always be the pull of home but also the pull of work, mm. and that's that's okay. And, 
it's like life you know you don't have to be a parent to experience that feeling of wondering if you've you know struck the right balance and and you know if you'd said yes to this thing or made a different decision here that's not unique to parenthood um at all and I don't know I think for me I'm, I'm just getting better at enjoying the moment and knowing that it is very very fleeting mm. and so what does success look like for you personally mm. I was having this very discussion with um another woman who's had her second baby um the other day just by text we weren't actually having a phone conversation that mm-hmm. would be too ambitious <laughs> it was, te- <laughs> it was te- just texting late at night um but she she also their second baby took a long time to arrive um and we were both saying that we've finally only just beginning to start redefining our notion of what success and fulfillment means um and for me it's definitely not just my cv uh and it, it it's it's the joy i derive from my day for all sorts of different reasons and that's I get a joy from my partner joy from my family my kids joy from work joy from working with different people and sort of firing off ideas with them but also joy from where I live I mean I think a lot of people are kind of reassessing the pace of life um where they live and what they do day to day because we've all had this opportunity to pause. Mm. Um, and the thing about having a baby is you, you do, there are similarities there. You do get to pause. It is such an extraordinary change that you do have these moments where you think, okay, do I want it to go back the way it was? Um, do I want to change things and, and why? So I think fulfilment is a better word than success. I think I'm really moving away from that word mm. success because I don't know what that word means anymore. Really. Yeah, neither do I. I'm mm. so interested in people's perspectives on that because it is such a, mm. I don't know, there's so many connotations with success like money and business suits mm-hmm. and they're the things that pop into totally. your head. But yeah. where does that fit for mothers? It's very confusing. So, yeah, I think fulfilment is a good change of change of word there do you have anything notable that's helping you get through the day at the moment through uh this global pandemic uh i think the notion of time i mean babies bend your sense of time and space absolutely um through sleeplessness and uh the way the days can drag uh, the way they grow so very quickly and all of a sudden they're one year old. Um, I think this time in isolation has also bent my notion of time and space. And so I think the big thing that I'm learning from that, coupled with this baby and both babies, is, well, I'm trying to cherish the moments. And I think I said earlier, there is no good day and no bad day. There are moments um, and I'm trying to teach that to my seven-year-old at the moment actually because he can sometimes say I'm having a terrible day. <laughs> and so I'll say, you know, you're having a terrible moment but but it will pass. And so I'm trying to just 
take those little golden moments and hold them like little warm pebbles in my pocket um, because that's really what it's all about, Mm. I think. And that can come from your kids. It can come from work. It can come from friends, family. You know, it can come from being completely alone. Mm. Um, But that's the stuff I'm attempting to cherish in amongst the chaos. Yeah, that's beautifully put. I would love to have some time completely alone. That sounds like (laughs) the perfect Mother's Day present ever. (laughs) I might actually attempt that today. We'll see. Do it. Thank you so much for spending a whole hour with me. That's very generous of you to give up your Mother's Day midday for me. Oh, no, I've absolutely loved it. It's been a very golden moment all I'm glad. Or 60 minutes of it. And thank you for sharing your story as well. I mean, it's like incredible to be able to put that out there for other people to hear and maybe relate to and maybe help them through whatever it is that they're going through at the moment. So, yeah. I it was a pleasure. It. Thank you. Okay. Well, you have a wonderful Mother's Day. Get back to your family or to your alone Two. time or whatever it is that you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'll be speaking to you soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Amy. And that's a wrap. As always, thank you endlessly for listening to today's conversation. I am so thankful to have you here joining me on this trajectory through mother and otherhood. If you love the show, please do go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And if you could spare a minute, rating or reviewing the podcast goes a long way to helping this show reach more ears and provide solidarity to other mothers out there who may need a little affirmation or even entertainment in their lives. See you next time.